mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Podcast Collective, powered by Audio Technica. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and this week, episode 61, what a show we have. But first, the iTunes review of the week goes to Evans Alexandre from the USA, who says, First time listener, I genuinely loved the Sean Pitts episode. I found that a ton of what was said in that episode really resonated with me. If you're young and ambitious and you have a hunger for knowledge about how to gain success, I think you'd really enjoy this podcast. Thank you, Evans. That was a great episode indeed. Way back in, well, I think it was May last year, if you want to check that out. Sean Pitts has definitely had the most shout-outs from all my interviews. There's been multiple people that have mentioned him. Anyway, this week we have a very special guest because I've been trying to get onto Mike DePlata for about 12 months, the Vice President of Creative at Monolith Productions. I actually emailed him about this time last year and he said, you know, talk to me after E3 because Monolith Productions, they had a little game called Middle Earth Shadow of War coming out in October. And I guess he wanted to focus on getting that done promoting it and that's exactly what he did he was up on stage in the microsoft conference promoting this game showing off the new mechanics uh, in front of millions of people all over the world which is pretty cool to see Uh, he's an aussie he's from adelaide and sydney he grew up here before moving overseas started out working with ea sports then went to creative assembly ubisoft and eventually monolith where he is now over in seattle so when i was interviewing him i could actually see uh, the game development office and people running around behind him so had to do a little bit of editing with the audio you can't hear the background noise but because of that it means that his voice sounds a little different but bear with it because it's a great interview of someone who's worked so hard in an industry for more than 20 years you know he's one of the ogs as far as i'm concerned just because of how he started from basically having no experience in games and worked his way into making himself an invaluable member of a game studio and he's ended up at monolith doing these awesome shadow of war and shadow of mordor games that are really innovating and changing the way that open world games can work with the nemesis system which he mentions on this podcast Just a little anecdote before we get started about how I got onto Mike. A lot of people lately have been asking me how I get my guests. Usually it is through like a Twitter DM or an email and then working out the details from there. But for Mike, his email wasn't publicly available. So I kind of had to MacGyver my way into finding it. And when I say that, all I really did was try a bunch of different like prefixes before the email address because I knew that it was something at Lith. And I ended up stumbling across the right one. He replied and said, after E3 and then he didn't get back to me for quite a while until I tried again earlier this year so stick with it that's really the way that you can get these kinds of interviews if it's something that you're interested in doing yourself so here he is Mike DePlata enjoy the show thank you for joining me Mike it's uh, awesome to have you here it's been quite a while but I'm glad that we could finally work out a time that works internationally through uh, the, the, I guess, the busy schedule of a game developer. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having us. It's uh, it's nice to at least virtually be back in Australia for a bit. <laughs> Must be periods where you just think, gee, I'd love to hear someone talking in my native accent. My native tongue, yeah. 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 <laughs> so hopefully I uh, can not make you feel homesick, but feel very at home. Yeah, thank you. That's all right. So you are the vice president of creative at Monolith. Let's talk a little bit about what that means. And then we might get into the career journey or the steps that have led to that position? Because I know you've been in multiple studios uh, making a lot of big games over the years and I'd, I'd love to hear kind of the steps through each one. So what are you doing at the moment? Uh, so at the moment, I'm at Monolith Productions. So not too long ago, what 
is it last October we shipped Middle Earth Shadow of War, which is this big sort of PlayStation, PC, Xbox, uh, Lord of the Rings open world game. A fantastic game too. Oh, thank you very much. And so after that, we have the DLC to ship and we have all of the sort of updates. And then we're also getting into thinking about what we're going to do next. And so, of course, video games, especially at this scale, are this massively collaborative process. So by the time we have our writers, and our artists and designers and engineers, so it's as much as possible, it's sort of trying to be in the middle of all of that and all of those people and kind of help everybody head in the same direction towards the same goals. Mm. Okay. And I imagine that is a lot of that is just collaborating, make sure the hand knows what the other hand's doing. It's just a whole kind of team body experience. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially as you grow, as teams get bigger. I just think back when I started and teams were like six people and then there were 20 people and then there were 50 people. Just the, just the straight up communication of everybody having direct communication with everybody else just multiplies exponentially and just gets more and more complex. So if you can just try and be a point of contact, so whoever it is that comes to talk to you, they basically are going to get the same story of what's going on and where we're headed. That can make an enormous difference. And it sounds like a simple thing, but it, it's also something that could really easily go wrong and people can very quickly start diverging and heading off in different directions. Mm. I can imagine. And I guess some of the stories we've heard about games going badly, uh, maybe examples where that hasn't been done as well, would you say? Uh, I, I think it's always challenging because there's already always so many different stakeholders or people who have different, um, I guess, perceptions on where things should be heading. And so it's, it is incredibly easy to get derailed or distracted or start heading off in, in different directions or start second-guessing yourself and going backwards. So it's having that balance of being really receptive and trying to understand all these different people's points of view and what they're looking for, but at the same time, keep things headed in, in one particular direction. Sure, okay. I'm sure big films get like that as well. Yeah, I can imagine. So... Mike, you're a bit older than me and probably most of my audience, which means you have a lot of wisdom to impart. Um, (laughs) I'm interested, how did you get into game development in the 90s? Because now, you know, games are just everywhere. We know so much about the stories behind them and what goes into them. But from what I remember reading my PlayStation magazines back then, it probably wasn't, you know, the internet certainly didn't shine a light on it like it does now. So how did you learn about this other side of games and get into it to start with? The sort of games I was really interested in or into at that time, I wasn't actually particularly into computers or engineering, but I loved Dungeons and Dragons. I loved the pen and paper role-playing game. So my kind of dream job at that point was being a pen and paper game designer. Mm. And then I was also, you know, really into horror. I was trying to write horror. I was getting some early stories published. But then at that time, it was about when the Sega Genesis, like the Mega Drive, came out. And I started getting into a few games. And uh, it was actually the EA Sports games that were on the Genesis, so Madden. And I was just looking at the billboards on the side of that and just seeing they were labeled EA Sports. I was thinking, okay, one, video games are increasing in their fidelity. So this seems really exciting. And two, how am I going to get into that? Because I had no real idea about it. But I could see the, the potential, I guess, for the advertising on the billboards of these sports games. So I actually went off to Coca-Cola and McDonald's and started pitching them on the idea of doing advertising within the games. Got some support from them to raise some money and then started working. It was actually with my dad at the time and his business borrowed some money 
and went off to Taiwan to start making Australian sports games. So, really had no wow. sort of experience or prior background and just you can do a lot when you don't know what you can't do. <laughs> uh, and then so, we started working on actually an Australian rugby league game, working on the license for that. Uh, and that ended up bringing us into contact with EA and that eventually became our first kind of Australian EA sports game. That's awesome. And I know that you, you worked on like some NRL games, AFL 98, which was a game I definitely remember playing. So, oh, yeah. was, was it just kind of bringing uh, those games to EA and saying, I think there's a bit of a market for that in Australia? Is that, yeah, was we, that part of your role in that? Yep. It was seeing, you know, here's these EA sports games. We could bring that uh, to Australia as a way in. And then EA at the time in Australia, so there was uh, a couple of guys there. There was Nigel Sandiford, who was the president of EA Australia, and George Fiddler, who was the manager. And he basically became kind of my mentor through that whole whole period. They had the interest in that, but they put us in touch with EA in the UK, who just started making FIFA, so local sports games for them. And there was a little company called Creative Assembly, owned by yeah. this guy Tim Ansell, and he'd been doing the PC ports of these EA games, so FIFA and so on. So, got in touch with Tim. And at that time, Creative Assembly was six people basically above a shop in this little town in England. So, mm. started working with Creative Assembly and went from working on the Australian rugby game to then doing AFL and cricket. And we were like making three games a year at that time. So, the pace of... Wow. It was, I, I think in some ways, it probably wasn't very different to what making indie games now would be like, you know, small teams and really fast and kind of turning these games around. Um, and that was where I learned, you know, a ton of what I ultimately... Uh, a lot of the basics, I guess, of game design of that really quick development. So, whereas now, where a game takes three years or more, I think it's it's much harder to kind of get that experience of going through the whole cycle of, of getting a game out. But I think, you know, even a lot of the things now that we have in Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War of making these player stories and the play-by-play commentary and the action and how systemic it was, a lot of those ideas are really founded in that early experience of the of the sports games and the EA Sports. Sure. And so, what was next after EA? So, it was EA. Then we were with Creative Assembly and I was I was always basically a massive nerd. So, I wasn't that into sports particularly. It's more like sports <laughs> were just the, the way in to get into games. So, Total War was a bit more of your thing? Yeah, yeah. Playing with toy soldiers and, you know, the yeah. sort of the armies and so on. And we'd actually... With EA, we also published an RTS game, this strategy game called Crush, Kill and Destroy, which was done by a company in Melbourne called Beam Software. And it was basically Command and Conquer, but with a Mad Max reskin. Oh, cool. And it was cool. It went really well. So, so that was good. So, we thought, okay, we'll do an RTS. We'll do a strategy game. And that's what ultimately evolved and became Shogun total war that was done by creative assembly as well as that's when mike simpson came on joined creative assembly so he's still there but that was that was our first rts and then at the end of shogun then it wanted to do something i guess even far more ambitious or crazy in that strategy game space and that's what became uh, rome total war which we're okay. working on for the next four years and then at the end of that, Rome went really well. That was a sort of a sort of massively overambitious kind of crazy game because again, it was sort of not knowing what we couldn't do, so we did absolutely everything. 
And it was after Rome Ship that I then left Creative Assembly and joined Ubisoft and went over to Shanghai. So moved to China and we started up working on a, another uh, strategy game with Ubisoft in China. Yeah. You were there for a number of years. You worked on some of the Tom Clancy games. So tell me what it was like to go from progressively bigger and bigger companies and working on, I guess, more high profile releases. So at that time, so I'd been... Uh, working with Creative Assembly for eight years. So I'd only been in that one place. I'd left Australia, spent some time in Taiwan, then lived in the UK. So going to China was like a huge leap. Mm. And Ubisoft, I think, was a, a sort of a much bigger company. They had a lot of really great processes in place. They were really disciplined, I think, about. They had an approach to design. They had an approach to production. They were in the middle of, of making games like Ghost Recon and the first Assassin's Creed game. So they were being extremely ambitious in how i think you know the innovation and the quality of the game mm. um, so learned a ton there but at the same time in china that studio had never done an original game from the beginning so it was kind of also like being back to square one and just having this smaller inexperienced but really passionate team and then building this whole new game from the ground up in a in a new genre that was super exciting and then it was taking everything we'd learned about strategy games, but trying to put that onto console as well. So it was almost mashing together the kind of the Tom Clancy techno thriller mm. shooter type game together with the RTS experience of, of Total War at the same time as, as living in Shanghai, which was basically just being in the middle of Blade Runner. Like that was an amazing <laughs> experience as well. Yeah. And then that's the same place my, my daughter was born over there as well. So that was, I don't know, it was a pretty awesome time all around. And then after that came out, that was Tom Clancy's End War. Um, and then that shipped, and I was still with Ubisoft, and then went back with them to France. So went to Paris and worked there for a while, and then was down in the, the south of France at Ubisoft Montpellier, and we were working up a pitch on this kind of uh, cyberpunk open world game. And that was really fun. That was South of France was fun. Everything I'd been led to believe about the French being rude and horrible pretty much wasn't true. So that was good. <laughs> That's a relief. Yeah. And uh, that one, I think in some ways we'd sort of bitten off more we, than we could chew. And that game didn't get greenlit, so it didn't go ahead. So that was kind of a bit crushing. But it sort of worked out well because that was when I, I left Ubisoft and came over and joined Monolith in Seattle to start working on Lord of the Rings. Yes, uh, I know that before Shadow of Mordor, you guys put out another Lord of the Rings game. Was that what you left to work on? No, I, um, I was actually really inspired by what Warner Brothers had done with Batman, so the Arkham Asylum and Arkham City games by Rocksteady, which were just these incredible games that kind of redefined, I think, what you could do with, a, with that license. You know, they very clearly weren't movie games. Because, you know, Chris Nolan's Batman movies were out at the same time, and these were really very different. So I was like, really want to do what they did with Batman. It'd be really exciting to be involved in working on that with Lord of the Rings. So when I arrived, the game they had been working on, War in the North, uh, was was actually an alpha. So it was coming close to the completion sure. of the game. So I just sort of arrived totally at the tail end of that. And then after that shipped was when we started on Shadow of Mordor. What was it like to come in? And I'm guessing that Shadow of... Uh Mordor was the biggest selling game you've worked on, just not being as familiar with some of those previous ones. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so far, every game I've worked on sold more than the preceding ones. So, you know, 
they've each they've each sort of grown and gone up so from the sports games to shogun to rome to then tom clancy to then shadow and now now shadow of war so hopefully i can i can keep that trend going yeah so i think for a lot of gamers monolith might not have been on the on their radar as far as these big triple a game experiences goes so was shadow of mordor a huge step up for that group of developers I mean, it was, again, I think the same as when I went to Ubisoft or Creative Assembly, it was getting to work with a whole new bunch of people with different experiences that I could learn a lot from. And, and previous to that, they'd done uh, games like Fear and Condemned. So sure, yeah, it's right. really heavily story-based uh, shooters, really strong action, but nothing like a big open world game. So in a way, I think I was bringing some of what I'd learned at, at Ubisoft um, of that style of game together with Monolith's experience and kind of putting them together to make something new. So, yeah, again, I think the same, the thing that it had in common between first going into Total War and then going to Shanghai with End War and then coming here was every time it was kind of starting from ground one in terms of a, a new type of game with a new team. Um, and I think that's always really exciting for people. So they, they get really energized and they get really motivated and uh, kind of do things that in some ways are a little more impossibly ambitious than what we should be able to do. Yeah, and I think Shadow of Mordor was definitely a game that uh, innovated and changed the way people are viewing some of these open world dynamics. And I think that, you know, having to follow that up with a sequel a few years later must have been a lot of pressure to continue to innovate. And I know I saw, I remember seeing you up on the E3 stage. I think it was the Microsoft conference. It was one of the big ones anyway. And I was thinking, man, there's a lot of people watching this guy right now. And here's this, this guy from, uh, from Australia talking about this huge game. Like you've basically become the mouthpiece of that company now. So what's it like to have, I guess, that marketing side under your responsibility as well? I always think there's, I think getting, I don't really like doing the marketing stuff, but I think it's really <laughs> useful to have to do it in the sense that if you can explain or communicate what people you know, can hope to get from the game or where it's innovative or why it's fun, those are exactly the same type of decisions um, that should go into the game itself or the design of the game itself. So I, I kind of think that the marketing side and the design side ultimately end up being really connected to each other as they're both they're both trying to do the same thing which is engage and surprise and kind of you know make the players lose themselves in the game so if you can't articulate what's good about the game or you can't get excited about it then it's going to be really hard for the game itself to do that or the game to succeed at doing those things hmm. so yeah i kind of think see it as part of the design process really sure but i mean like a lot of companies big game companies especially have a person that's specifically designed to be the the mouthpiece or the the marketing you know the pete hines at bethesda and people like that so do you see yourself is that just an extension of what you do as the, the vice president of creative or is that something you've been working towards training towards like how does that work in terms of being the voice of an organization yeah i just i guess i just feel i'm probably more able to get more genuinely excited about what we're doing than anybody else who's doing that you know just for a job or you know sure. even if they're actually better than me at that job uh, i i kind of feel that players uh, are really educated and they're you know they know what's bullshit or they know what's true or they're sort of sensitive to any pr speak so just if we can be as sincerely and genuinely 
excited about what we're doing as we can then hopefully that comes across to people yeah that's pretty cool what's it actually like to be on the e3 stage just knowing that this is a huge moment in selling your game from a marketing perspective but also if i stuff up i'm going to be a meme on the internet for the next couple of weeks (laughs) yeah yeah oh yeah that's i think that's the thing we've sort of learned is you know the attention span of the internet so short that ultimately whatever happens is it's going to go away pretty quickly anyway but I think the thing you feel the most responsibility to is ultimately the team because you've got these like hundreds of super smart, excellent people who are also your friends who are, you know, you don't want to um, sort of screw it up for as well. Mm. Through those different uh, studios you've worked with and different positions, just looking through some of what I could find online, there was a bit of variation in what the role was called. So it could be off base because I've pulled it from the internet. But can you tell me about the difference between producer, director of design, and vice president of creative that you have now? Yeah, so producer, um, I mean, in some ways, I think I've always had exactly the same job, which is sort of trying to guide the direction or the vision of the game. And producer just means they're trying to make shit happen, whether it's doing (laughs) deals or organizing things or HR or just doing whatever needs to be done. And creative assembly when i was first working with them they had a policy that they didn't actually have any designers they're like everyone's creative everyone on the team was a designer so you needed to be doing something else productive even if that was part of your work so for me that was uh, all the deals and the business side and kind of especially on the sports games that was a big part of making that happen but then as the teams get bigger you're able to get more specialized so then at ubisoft the way they sort of structure things they kind of have this trinity um, at the top of the game they have a business person who's the producer someone has the responsibility for the money and getting the thing made very much like a movie producer and then they have a marketing director so someone who's really responsible for making sure that the the game is really targeted and thinking about the consumer and who's going to play it and then design so that was great because then i got to you know focus and specialize more on just the creative side which Hmm. i just was sort of the fun part of the job anyway and then since i got to do that on uh end war basically i've just got to be able to continue doing that so at at monolith it's fantastic because i really am in the position where i'm able to just focus on collaborating with the team and just on the creative side and the the production and the business and all of that stuff's really taken care of by other people who are better at that than i am sure so from here as vice president of creative, is that really the position that determines a lot of those creative decisions in terms of this is the story we want to work with, this is the setting, this is the visual appeal, this is the message we want to communicate in this part of the game? So kind of yes, like you do get to come up with ideas for that, but in order for anything to actually make it into a game and be good, it has to be a collaborative process because the people that are specialists that are working on that particular area, whether it's the combat or whether it's the story or whether it's the art, they have to have a really strong sense of ownership of what that is. So all of those decisions and all of those areas are collaborations. But I think the key is all of those different areas, whether it's the aesthetics or the audio or the gameplay, have to all fit together in a way that's cohesive. So I think my job sort of to collaborate with everyone and then try as much as possible to make sure that all of those different elements are consistent and actually feel like they fit together into a a sort of a a coherent experience coherent game 
So basically every time, you know, I can have ideas, but it's still always a, a conversation and a presentation and a discussion and an iteration and pretty much anything I ever come back with by the time it goes through that process ends up better because someone's improved the idea or updated it or changed it or whatever. But sure. games are, I think, probably even more than films. Not that I've worked in any other mediums, but from my experience in games, it feels like they've, they've just got to be just about the most collaborative experience there is just because the engineering, the art, the design, everything has to be so sort of integrated and everything's so dependent on everything else. Absolutely. So what's it like to work on something for so long and then have the final product come out, sell millions of copies and actually see your fingerprints all over it? Because I imagine there are things in there that have been the result of what you've either come up with or you've agreed with other people when they've suggested them. So that must be a bit of a a thrill, I imagine. It's awesome. I mean, hopefully, you know, it's the job I get to do for the rest of my career. Like, I love it. And, And plus now as well. So you can go on Reddit or you can go on Amazon or you can go on YouTube and you can see people making new stories or making new content or make just making new things out of what you've created and it's so it's not just even people playing it whatever you've done actually becomes a discussion so some people love things some people hate things you know some Tolkien fans get offended so just being able <laughs> a part of that whole discussion and getting to see different people's reactions and responses and some people get really passionate they get really moved by things even if they even if they hate it and it pisses them off but that you've you've actually done something that in you know some small ways maybe affected kind of millions of people is is pretty awesome that sense of i guess branching stories does that take you back to the D days as well yeah still kind of still chasing that i still think that's the holy grail of gaming is that level of the player being able to actually drive the the story rather than i guess being told a story from the by the designer and we were at gdc for example just a, a couple of weeks ago and i, I think the whole industry or games in general as AI advances and as technology advances, just the potential for players to create and live their own stories in these worlds is just sort of just, we're really just at the beginning of what's possible. So over the past 20 years, let's say, because I think it's probably been slightly longer that you've been working in games, but what's been the, the biggest changes and what's some of the more exciting things to look forward to? I think the biggest change from it has just been the the scale. Like games are just so unimaginably massive now. Like you know something like GTA Five or Destiny or PUBG. Just that they're these incredible. Just the games themselves are so massive and deep and complicated, uh, and then that they are, are also so much a part of the culture. Like. League of Legends is bigger than football in China now. So <laughs> just to see that that growth that I really think, you know, games basically are the, well, they're certainly competing to be kind of the preeminent form of entertainment of the 21st century. So that's pretty awesome. And I think, you know, for the future, just that they are just at the beginning of what they can possibly be. So as the kind of technology and AI is just becoming so integrated into society, whether it's phones or mobile, that games are just everywhere now just totally going to be part of people's lives okay so for someone that grew up in adelaide and sydney what's been the hardest part of kind of developing each step it looks like you've taken is a step forward and not having anyone to model your career after what's been the hardest part of getting to where you are at this point i i just think the fact that every single project or every game i've worked on has just felt 
very much like do or die. Like I've always had that sense that if this game fails, that's it. I'm, I'm never going to work again. Yeah, right. I'll be back to square one. You know, I'll have nothing because in some ways it is sort of such a, such a dream job, but you're always kind of, I guess, gambling on the success of the next thing. So that's why it's been so great in some ways to see each, each sort of project grow or to constantly just, just basically constantly having to move forward, but always feeling like you're just on the edge of complete disaster. Right. And I mean, it happens, you know, studios go out of business, games fail. So just, yeah, this is a, there's a lot of stress of always, I think having that sense that if you, if you really drop the ball once, that's it. And I'll have to go and get some sort of real job. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine like you're, you're so far from home and you've lived all over the world from the sounds of it. You're in Seattle now, right? Yep. And so, is that been difficult, like having to pick up your life and move several times? Is that just part of the excitement of, of game development for you? Yeah, it's part of the fun of it. And and another thing, the people in game development, like the engineers, artists, other designers, I think have so much in common, no matter where you are in the world. I think, you know, even though it's in England or China or France or Australia, uh, being at the studio and the people you meet there and the types of people you meet, like are generally so smart, so nice, and they're, they're motivated by doing this for a job. So um, I, I do just sort of feel I've just been really lucky to be in with a, a really great group of people wherever I live. And, and plus, as you travel around and you're making friends and you're sort of going through the, the, the war of getting a game out each time, so you do make pretty strong friendships. So now I sort of feel like, you know, I've got friends in all these different places as well, um, including back in Australia, so... Yeah, that's cool. So, as far as the current position you're holding, what's the greatest challenge that you have to face in, I guess, day-to-day work life? Day-to-day is the work life. I mean, it's being able to find that balance. So, you know, family and being at home and relaxing and also to do a creative job. I mean, for for me as well, I have to have other sources of inspiration or input. Like, I've got to be reading books Mm. and still playing games and playing other board games and kind of you know, having things outside of work is critical for me to being able to be effective at work. So just trying to just really optimize and find that balance between work and home and life and family and balancing that is just a really ongoing challenge, I think. Okay. And I'm interested, you mentioned GDC before. One of the big topics that I heard discussed there was talking about unionization in video game development and as someone that's worked for a number of companies ranging from you know the massive ubisoft to i guess smaller creative assembly and even smaller with ea sports i imagine have you got any thoughts about that process whether it's something that's necessary or inevitable at all i really i really don't know much about it or haven't looked that much in it i think i've just been lucky that all the places I've worked, so Creative Assembly and Ubisoft, certainly in Shanghai and here at Monolith, um, I think have all been good experiences that have generally been, you know, really made a lot of effort to do the right thing by the, the people that work there and really cared about the people that work there. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't really have much of a insight, no. I guess. That's fair enough. Is Crunch something that you've had to experience with, with each of, of these big game releases? Never, I mean, yes, to some extent, but never to the level that I've sort of, I guess, hear about or read about or hear the horror stories of. Like, I'm a pretty firm believer that making games is kind of a marathon, not a sprint. And so, if you want to 
optimize for what's most productive, then you want to have some level of balance between how much you're working and how much you're relaxing. So even if even if you just were being completely ruthless, it's still there's still a level where it's just not going to be productive to just work people to a level where they're exhausted and miserable because they're not going to do their best work anyway. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's about managing people's energy levels as well as what they're putting out as well. Yeah, when people are motivated and engaged, they're just going to do better work, I think. Sure. Um, What would be your advice to people that want to get into game development? Because you've probably seen it all by this stage and I know that you've also seen the industry change significantly for the better and for the probably for the worse in, in some ways, but what would be your advice over your career to, to impart on the younger people getting into it? Uh, I think now more than ever, it's like really just to be able to make games. You know, there's there's things like Unity and there's so many tools to get out there and just, just make games and get them out there. And also, you know, again, having just come back to GDC, I think people in the game industry tend to be really sort of open and sort of giving so get in touch with people or ask people questions or go to events like gdc just go for it and as long as i think the the key thing is just being genuinely passionate about it Mm. so um, if you think there's someone who wants it more than you do they probably do and they'll you know when it comes down to it they'll they'll probably uh, get the job ahead of you so the way that you got into games sounds quite unique compared to how people might now is there a way to work into that kind of producer role without being a creative like programming designing person or do you have to kind of start with the uh, unity and 3d modeling and that kind of thing to to kind of get in there no, i think some uh, producers are great producers because they're really passionate about management you know and their background could be business school or it could be management in other areas whether it was software or whatever like some people are just great people people and great managers and great organizers so i think as projects have gotten bigger production is becoming more about project management and about organization and about those particular disciplines so you could definitely have potential to get into those sort of roles without necessarily having a background even in video games yeah it's interesting that you don't have to study computer engineering to work in video games you can pretty much study anything i'm sure that you've got accountants and you've got web designers and you've got uh you know marketing people there as well i started doing law and dropped out so i got time to drop out i think you've done all right for yourself so far so far so the last question i've got for you mike is something that i ask everyone and it's if you could do anything and know that you couldn't fail what would you do oh this next game yeah <laughs> That's no are question. you allowed to tell me what it is nope no not at all can you tell me how you feel about this next game uh i feel it's like taking everything that we've learned and done over the last kind of six years with Shadow and uh, yeah, just taking taking all of that and all we've learned, especially the Nemesis system stuff and just, just totally uh, blowing that out of the water. Hmm. Okay. Am I allowed to ask, is it a new, a different IP from Middle Earth? No. Nah. <laughs> I can't possibly say. You can't tell me anything. No, that's I, would, right. I would lose that's, my job. Yeah. That's your job is to know what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say. <laughs> yep. Nothing. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. And I've really enjoyed getting the nitty gritty of what's been happening in your career up to this point. And I think a lot of people will take a lot out of it too. So thanks for making some time for me. Oh, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Audio Technica. That was Mike Deplata. You can follow him on Twitter at mdeplata. And if you want to keep up with his company, it's at monolithdev. Or you can go to the website lith.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes rating and review. 
And if you really enjoyed it, you can pick up some awesome putting in work merch. There's plenty of designs to choose from. You can see all of that over at 8bit.net slash P-I-W. That's A-T-E-B-I-T. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jono himself. And until next week, keep putting in work.